0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Making Contact, the National Network of Abortion Funds, Fusion, The David Pakman Show, This Week in Blackness, Democracy Now!, and Activism from RH Reality Check.
1: Before documenting the era of illegal abortion, it's important to get an overview of what's happened since abortion first became legal. After a century of tragedies, a nationwide move to legalize the procedure of abortion led to a 1973 Supreme Court decision giving women the right to choose. The struggle to protect that right is ongoing.
2: I can remember the last time we had a march and walking down the street and thinking, you know, I thought that we wouldn't have to do this anymore. When the Supreme Court decision was won, we all went, that's it, we won. And we relaxed, but at the same time, we had these groups that were organizing to repeal it, and what they did was chip away, because then Medicaid funding wasn't allowed for poor women and then there was spousal consent that came up and then you couldn't provide services to minors without parental notification or parental consent but it means that you can never relax
3: we're hearing about knitting needles again we're hearing about bleach douches again and they may not be reporting it to their physician or to the judge that they end up talking to, or to the clinic worker at the hospital, that there are girls out there doing that.
1: Even though history may be repeating itself now, this story begins when abortion was illegal. Until the mid-1800s, abortions were legal and available in the United States both the state and the church permitted abortions if they occurred before quickening when the mother first perceived fetal movement. In 1847, the newly formed American Medical Association began a campaign to professionalize medicine outlawing what it called quackery. Included in the ban were midwives and herbalists. Protestant and Catholic churches joined the medical establishment in expressing their condemnation. Legislation restricting abortion continued to spread, and by the turn of the century, both birth control and abortion were illegal in most states. If a woman needed medical attention after a botched abortion, she faced a dangerous situation. Even though infected and bleeding, She was often required to testify against the person who performed the abortion before she could receive medical care. From the late 1800s through 1973, at least 500,000 clandestine illegal abortions were taking place each year. Some women found safe operations, but most faced the back alleys. Throughout the 1960s, the struggle for abortion rights became one of the fastest growing social movements in the history of the United States. People were willing to challenge the law, and if necessary, risk arrest. Among them was Reverend Howard Moody, an American Baptist
4: minister. Some of us felt very strongly and said, "We, I think we ought to break the law. I think we ought to... To counsel women and help women get abortions, even if it's against the law.
1: With a group of 21 clergy, Reverend Moody organized a free referral network to provide counsel for any woman with an unintended pregnancy who needed help.
4: I felt that I could make a case to be there for her, whatever her decision was. Not just not just if it were for abortion, but if it were having the child and giving it up or if it were for having the child and not giving it up and keeping it. Whatever it was, we would try to help her find a way to do that. And that as as religious people, uh, as people who cared about people's spirits, there was no way that you could do that without caring about their bodies.
1: Religious leaders across the country began to speak out about women's rights.
2: One of the mistaken notions about the 60s is that we were primarily a civil rights movement.
1: That's Pastor James Lawson, a United Methodist minister.
2: The better term would have been human rights because we talked all the time about dignity and freedom and justice. For a woman to not be counted as being able to make... Adequate decisions, medical, spiritual, moral, about herself, about her own well-being, about her family, of course, is a denial of a, of a woman's basic uh, uh, humanity, basic ability, basic uh, God-given given rights.
1: As public awareness grew, state legislatures across the country began to discuss changing the laws. In New York State, Pro-choice activists managed to bring the issue to the floor for a vote.
5: There are many who say that this bill
1: is abortion on demand. I submit that we have abortion on demand in the state of New York right now. Any woman that wants an abortion can get one. And the real difference is how much money she has to spend. If she has $25, she has it done here, under the most abominable circumstances. And if she doesn't have the $25, she can abort herself. And regretfully, this is happening more often than you or I like to admit. The final roll call showed a tie. As the Speaker of the House raised his gavel to announce the bill's defeat, George Michaels asked for the floor. Uh, Mr.
6: Speaker? Michaels.
1: Assemblyman George Michaels represented a predominantly Roman Catholic district. His constituents expected him to vote against the bill, which he did.
7: I had hoped that this would never come to pass. I fully appreciate that this is the termination of my political career... But what's the use of getting elected, or re-elected, if you don't stand for something? I cannot in good conscience stand here and be the vote that defeats this bill. I therefore request you, Mr. Speaker, to change my negative vote to an affirmative vote.
1: George Michael's vote did end his political career. But for thousands of women who lived in New York, and for those who could afford to travel there, abortion was now legal. The vote in New York laid the groundwork for the Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade. Sarah Weddington was a recent law school graduate when she decided to challenge the abortion law in Texas that case became roe versus wade
8: i will never forget the night before oral argument because i was so nervous Uh, i had done a few uncontested divorces i had done wills for people with no money and i had done one adoption that was the entire sum of my legal experience but i had spent three years almost getting ready to stand before the u.s. supreme court
1: the issue of abortion had personal meaning for sarah when she was in law school She and her future husband went to Mexico for an illegal abortion.
8: I was in the courtroom, and I had a flashback to that clinic in Mexico, and then my determination that no woman should have to go through that, and that I would do anything I could to see that that was not necessary. We are not here to advocate abortion. We are here to advocate that the decision as to whether or not a particular woman will continue to carry or will terminate a pregnancy is a decision that should be made by that individual. That in fact she has a constitutional right to make that decision for herself.
1: In recent years, efforts to limit abortion rights have been focused on legislatures and the courts. In the last decade, more than 350 laws restricting women's reproductive rights have passed. Women are finding it difficult, once again, to get safe care. In Kentucky, abortion funding is only available in cases of rape, incest, or life endangerment.
9: I was inspired by my own experience. Um, When I was 19 years old I had an abortion and I felt like I was alone in the world. I never knew another woman that had had an abortion and it was very scary and intimidating to go through that process completely alone and I never wanted another woman to have to go through that in the way that I did.
2: I called a woman and I asked, is it okay for you to talk right now? And she said, not really, but I need to. And I said, is someone around that you can't talk about it? And she said yes. And I was like, Are you able to leave the room? And she said no. And so I said, Would it be okay with you if I tried to complete the intake using yes and no questions? And she said yes. And so we just kind of did the intake that way. And when it came to like the financial things, she kind of said, Oh, around 110th Street, or you know, like to give me the numbers. I mean it was just like we had to be creative to get that done um, but I was just really glad I was able to help her because her procedure was like the next day so um, that one really sticks out in my mind It's having to be creative to help someone get what they need.
3: In my day job I'm a teacher so the stories that are always most personal to me and one that that really sticks with me because I picture maybe some of my students in the same situation but a high school senior who called us Um, was excited that she just gotten into college uh, and found out that she was pregnant. Her boyfriend was telling her that he really loved her and you know they'd make it work and her intelligence and no nonsense about it um, the fact that she said my boyfriend loves me and he's trying to do the best that he can do but I know that this is going to be really hard and I know this will be a situation that changed my life and I'm not ready to do that. Uh, Her wherewithal and her ability to get the funds together and do everything that she could, uh, talk to her family. She really went all out and all she needed was that little bit of extra and those are the things that stick with me. Like That girl will be in college this fall and that makes me feel good and that's why we keep doing these things. One of the stories that has touched me the most um, is of a woman I'll I'll call Nikki. Um, She had to drive Two hours for her abortion and in our state we have a 24-hour waiting period which requires two visits so she had to drive two trips over two days miss two days of work and pay for two days of child care and she had saved up everything she had and she could afford her abortion
9: and when she got to the clinic on the second day she was $15 short because she had had to pay for some gas because of all the driving to and from the clinic and when she got there um, she was $15 short Um, and we funded her the last $15 so that she wouldn't be turned away and that was one of the stories that has stayed with me the most. I was on the hotline and I got a call from a woman who was 21 weeks and she was in Houston, Texas. She had been chronically homeless and living out of her car with her two children and had not found out that she was pregnant until much later on than most of the women who called our hotline at that point in time. Um, because of how far along she was in the procedure, she had limited resources and was going to need to travel to get the abortion. She really opened up on the phone and was very thankful to have someone that was just willing to listen to her and affirm for her that there were no judgments in the decision that she was making um, and that I trusted her to make the best decision for herself and her family. And. I'm cheering him now because that story really has stuck with me over the years. I was just very moved by what this woman had been through and what she wanted to do and that she had literally no support in her life to do it. Whether it's the really desperate cases, you know, like the the family that's heartbroken because the, something's gone terribly wrong with the fetus or the mother's health is in danger and so they have to terminate a wanted pregnancy or the 12 year old who was you know sexually assaulted by a relative. Um, you know those are of course really compelling but even more so it's just the, the ordinary the, the woman who just doesn't want to be pregnant or it's not the right time in her life or she wants to be able to provide for the children that she does have you know those stories are the ones that really, there's so many of those stories, far more than the more extreme cases, that you know you realize just how much this affects so many people, and not just those uh, people who are seeking the abortions, but everyone else in their lives, their families, it touches them as well.
10: There are some really challenging stories that bring us to tears at the end of the day, and then there are some stories that bring us joy as women are empowered to make the choices that are best for themselves and their family. and. So it's, you know, it's, it runs the gamut of, of the emotions that we feel as humans and the, those personal stories are what's so important.
0: You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using, or visit the website from any device at bestofleft.com.
1: This young woman faced serious obstacles when she wanted to terminate a severely abnormal pregnancy.
8: We went for the ultrasound. Dr. White was telling me how some babies were born without a kidney, some babies were born without a heart or, you know, an organ. And then she she said, well, your baby was without a brain tissue. That was the hardest thing I've ever heard in my life.
1: To spare Angela the trauma of giving birth to a baby with no chance of survival, she decided to end the pregnancy. She soon learned that the several thousand dollar medical bill would not be covered by Medicaid. Working with the ACLU, Angela did win payment for the operation. There's a very passionate group in the state who are against abortion for any reason at all, ever, period, never. Dr. Connie White was Angela's gynecologist there's nothing in this world that's that black and white and you're dealing with people who are not involved with a medical situation trying to make blanket decisions if you've ever looked into a woman's eyes when you've just told her that her baby is doomed it's if they could see that they would know why this has to be kept safe and legal and why we don't need more barriers for these women. In a series of decisions starting in 1976, the Supreme Court ruled that states could require a minor to inform her parents before getting an abortion. Parental involvement laws are now on the books in 44 states. The majority of these are strictly enforced for teens with difficult home situations these laws create an additional burden
8: there certainly are some young women who for a variety of reasons and unfortunately physical abuse is one of them that absolutely cannot tell their parents.
1: Pat Mitchell was a clinic director in Alabama
8: and we talked to them then about judicial bypass there are some counties in this state that have judges that are just absolutely opposed to abortion, no matter what the circumstances. And it drives some young women to either go to an incompetent abortion provider, an illegal provider, and they're still out there, or to try to do a home remedy. And and there's still plenty of that going on in Alabama.
1: Opponents of abortion carry out their mission on two fronts. One is through state laws where legislation is being passed that creates barriers for women seeking abortions. The other is through clinic protests. Before abortion was legal, many women died from self-induced abortions. Now, once again, hospital emergency rooms report treating women who resort to unsafe methods. Chris was a sociology major at a state university when she discovered she was pregnant. Like many women her age, she was not ready to have a child. Chris went to a clinic during a wave of protests.
8: I went down with her and we waited in the waiting
1: room for I don't know how long. And there there's people outside marching around.
8: And she had a really bad experience there.
1: Chris became pregnant again after her birth control failed. She did not want to go back to a clinic because her first experience had been so frightening. Chris had been studying natural medicine and decided to use herbs as an abortifacient. Soon afterwards, she began to cramp.
5: When the cramping got really bad, she thought she was aborting. Um, And she had gone into convulsions in the bathtub then they'd found out that she'd had an ectopic pregnancy. And that the cramping that she was feeling was that she'd been hemorrhaging because they said that there was um, dried blood in and around her, um,
8: in her uterus. Um, that that's what killed her. The The desperation level is already here. It's the young women, it's the poor women. It's the women who feel like they can't tell anybody, who feel so socially ostracized because of the dilemma that they find themselves in in the first place. As the states pass more and more restrictive laws that make it harder and harder, that shrink access more and more, we see those numbers growing. Since the
1: 1973 decision, the climate for abortion clinics has been volatile with more than 12,000 incidents of disruption and terror. The most violent of these are seven murders.
9: A man burst into a planned parenthood abortion clinic and opened fire with a rifle. Minutes later, an identical attack occurred at a second clinic a mile and a half away.
4: Violence at an abortion clinic in Florida.
8: He just went up, chased the doctor down, and just shot him point blank.
1: More than 80% of the counties in the United States have no providers. Those who offer the service face serious threats. Right. Dr. George Tiller, whose practice included late-term abortions, had faced threats of violence for decades.
4: My office had been blown up. In 1993, I survived an assassination attempt.
0: A local abortion doctor, praised by some controversial to others, gunned down inside his Wichita church. Are you afraid that Dr. Tiller's murder is going to spark more
5: violence? This is the eighth murder, the seventeenth attempted murder. Um, There have been 41 bombings, 175 arsons, and the list goes on and on.
4: The biggest omission so far is to not identify anti-abortion terrorism as hate crimes. Certainly, murdering a doctor in his church is a hate crime.
1: Dr. Warren Hearn is one of only four doctors in the United States who still performs late-term abortions.
4: The assassination of Dr. Tiller was not the act of a lone deranged gunman. This is the result of 35 years of anti abortion harassment.
0: Violence as a political strategy is working to make abortion so unsafe for doctors that they are unwilling to bear the risks of performing it, so women can't actually get one, regardless of whether or not it's legal.
1: Anti abortion actions are often motivated by religious beliefs. This woman was the chief administrator at a women's health center, which provided a full range of services including adoption and abortion. Because of her work, she was threatened with excommunication from the Catholic Church.
6: All involved in the deliberate and successful effort to eject an unviable fetus from the mother's womb incur excommunication.
5: The most frightening thing was, had it been another time, I would have been burned at the stake. I wouldn't have had a piece of paper to tell me you're no longer a Catholic or you can no longer receive communion. But it's not going to silence me. And I'm going to continue to speak. And I, I want to be that force. I want to be that person that says, but we are affected by this. Women come to clinics like reproductive services and clinics other abortion providers across this country with the most incredible circumstances and we treat them with respect and we give them the quality medical care that they deserve.
1: The future of women's rights is built on the work of people who speak out and take a stand. People who believe that every woman should have the right to make
8: her own choices and that those choices should be protected. I've worked with most of the doctors who've been killed I knew them personally. When those horrible things happen and we are feeling so isolated and so alone and so vulnerable and I lock the door and walk out at night and think, maybe I just won't go back tomorrow. The face of my friend who died from a self-induced abortion comes to me. And I know if I don't come back the next day, there will be another one. Even as hard as we try, it's still going on. After the firebombing in our office, um, our whole office and my family went through a lot of struggle about whether I should continue to do that. And for me it was a combination of making my own decisions about my life and also having to make them because I am not alone. I have a family who I have to be sensitive to. Their emotions and their feelings are very important to me. And um, my child, um, I wanted him to understand that there are people in our lives that... um, can harm us and we need to be sensitive to that and my husband worried a lot um, did not want me to continue and we had to talk and he came around interestingly enough to the same thing that I came around which is that if you don't live by what you believe what are you living for?
1: As you've seen in this documentary, women's rights are at risk across the country we need to work together to protect reproductive freedom. What's important is that each of us takes an active
0: role. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently-owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way.
11: My name is Renee Bracey Sherman, and when I was 19, I had an abortion. I was a very outgoing kid. I was a figure skater, I played soccer, I played the piano, even though I kind of hated it. I was very (laughs) bossy. I've had cats ever since I was a kid. I'm a cat lady. That is, I think, my first and foremost identity. My parents raised me that I am equal to my brothers and that I should not be treated differently because I am a girl. I realized when I was pregnant that I did not want to continue the pregnancy. I simply wasn't ready. I was afraid to tell my family I wanted to pretend like I wasn't one of those girls. I didn't want to fall into society's statistics and stereotypes. And I didn't want to be a disappointment to my parents. We sat on the phone and we cried. My mom felt bad that she couldn't have been at the clinic with me because she wanted to have been there to support me. Mom, You gave me all of the tools that I needed to make the best decision for me, and I'm super thankful for that. I haven't once regretted it. It allowed me to change paths. It was one of the best decisions of my life.
12: We talked quite a bit on the show about messaging and narratives and how words are often co-opted to take on a political meaning that may not be the intended one if you're trying to engage in kind of worthwhile debate. We've talked about tax relief, right? The idea that taxes are a burden, thus tax relief is objectively good. Ignores, of course, all of the realities about what taxes are necessary to pay for in society traditional marriage the idea that traditions are good and thus traditional marriage is what we should really have of course used as an incredibly bigoted anti-gay umbrella term for the homophobes pro-life well if pro-life means that you don't want abortion to be legal then any other position would be anti-life very successful form of messaging and I have unfortunately fallen victim to this. Laura, who is a David Pakman show member from here in New York City actually, uh, wrote to me and said, David, I want to steer you away from using the term abortion doctor because there is no such thing. It's an incendiary term that anti-choicers have cooked up, kind of like partial birth abortion, to sway public opinion. It's not like a podiatrist who goes to medical school to specialize in feet. There are no doctors who go to medical school to specialize in abortions. Abortions are generally performed by an OBGYN, an obstetric surgeon, or by a family uh, practitioner who does those procedures. Family practitioner sounds a hell of a lot friendlier and more innocuous than abortion doctor so the Santorums of the world would much prefer to use their made-up term but as in many political debates the more innocuous term is actually the factual one George Tiller George Tiller of course is the doctor who was shot dead in Kansas by an anti-abortion nut. I don't know what else to call the guy uh, George Tiller was a doctor who performed abortions but he was not an abortion doctor, just like Planned Parenthood is not an abortion mill. The more anti-choicers can hold out abortion as something separate from women's health and the overall care of families, the more they can make abortion seem unnecessary and evil. I know it's an aside to the story that you were doing, but I think it's an important aside. One more point, David. No one calls a urologist a vasectomy doctor or a proctologist a colonoscopy doctor. In other words, abortion is not a system it's not an organ it's not a region of the body it is a medical procedure so that makes the double standard very very clear uh... i have very little to add because what laura says is spot on accurate so i'm going to be making the effort not to talk about uh, abortion doctors anymore because laura is completely accurate that it is not a term that makes any sense it is a term that feeds into the narrative that is specifically created by the anti-choice right and what we're talking about here is doctors they may be OBGYNs who do a whole range of medical procedures they may be family practitioners they may be surgeons but to say that they are abortion doctors does give the entire thing this kind of sinister sound that the Santorum's of the world as Laura has very astutely pointed out Benefit from. So I'm going to make the effort not to use the term anymore. I don't believe it's an accurate term. I would encourage you to do the same. Or if you disagree, if you think that as progressives and liberals who are based in empirical realities, the term abortion doctor actually does make sense, let me know why and then we can follow up about it on the program.
8: Well, I'm accustomed to Oh, right? maybe I'm a dog who's lost this I don't expect to be treated like a no more to sleep through the night so people say lies, lies, a lie But I said, why? Why deny the obvious child? Why deny the obvious child?
3: And i remembering a road sign I'm remembering a girl when I was young And we said, these
8: songs are true These days are ours These tears are free hey, The
2: cross is in the ballpark
10: Hurry Patel, she showed up to a hospital in Indiana um, with heavy vaginal bleeding. While she was in the hospital, she denied that she had been pregnant. But after a while, she, to- she told the doctors that she had been pregnant and that uh, the baby had been born. The baby had been born, stillborn. She placed the baby in- into a bag and put the bag in the dumpster. While she was at the hospital, the whoever was working at the hospital called the police. The police came in and questioned her without a lawyer. Looked through her phone and her text messages where they found messages in which she was communicating with her best friend saying that she was pregnant and she didn't know what to do. She comes from a conservative Hindu household um, um, in which it was assumed that she was not going to have sex before marriage and she really didn't want to tell her parents about, about um, the fact that she had been pregnant. So she was, of course, charged um, with... Uh, felony neglect of a dependent, and with feticide. In order to prove a charge of feticide, the prosecution had to prove that she had had killed a fetus, that the baby was not born alive, but that she had killed a fetus. In order to prove a charge of felony neglect of a dependent, the prosecution had to prove that she gave birth to a child that was alive and then killed it. Now you may be asking, how is it possible for a person to be charged both with feticide, which requires a dead fetus, and with felony neglect of a dependent, which requires a live birth? These are questions that were never answered at trial. Nevertheless, she was put on trial. The jury took, I think, less than five hours to to, uh, convict her of both charges. Now, during this trial... Prosecution, the, the, the state's pathologist, the state's toxicologist, excuse me, was unable to prove that there were any abortion-inducing drugs in her system. Didn't matter, she was convicted anyway. At the time, in order to prove that there was a live birth, the, the pathologist used this thing called a float test. And a float test is a, is a scientifically discredited methodology in order to determine whether or not a child took a breath once it had been delivered, before it died. So based on this very, very flimsy evidence, jury convicted her of both felony neglect of a dependent and feticide. On Monday, she was sentenced to 30 years for the felony neglect charge, with 10 of those years suspended. She was also uh, sentenced to 6 years on the feticide charge. That 6 years is to be served concurrently with the 20 years that she's going to be serving in prison. And then on top of that... When she gets out of prison, she's going to be uh, on probation for five
0: years. But she's, it's not going to be run con- concurrently?
10: The the feticide charge is going to be run concurrently with yes. the, 20 years that, the 20 years that she got for the felony neglect charge. So it's, she's
0: going to be for, I thought, I thought she was going to be for nine years or something like 20 that. 20 years.
10: What? 20 years for essentially a miscarriage. And here's the thing. Indiana's feticide law expressly states that it is not to be used against pregnant women. So basically what is happening, if you want to talk about how conservatives are always talking about activist judges, we literally have a case where there are prosecutors that are using a law, wielding a law as a weapon in order to criminalize pregnancy in a manner that the legislature legislature did not intend when it enacted this law. These feticide laws are intended to protect... For example, pregnant women who are in a car accident and are killed by a drunk driver. And so the drunk driver gets, an, gets an, a, an extra sentence in order to account for this wanted pregnancy that was lost as a result of this car accident. Or, for example, a domestic abuser who punches a pregnant woman in the stomach. That's feticide. It is not intended for women who are trying to terminate their own pregnancy or women who suffer miscarriages but cannot prove that it was actually a miscarriage and not something that they did on their own. This truly is, like, I cannot express to you how outrageous this is, that these laws that were specifically not intended to apply to pregnant women are being applied to pregnant women in order to criminalize pregnancy. First of all, and let it be known... That if Pervy Patel, she's a woman of color, she's Indian. The only other person to be charged in Indiana was a woman by the name of Bebe Shui. She was a Chinese-American woman who um, had a relationship with a man, got pregnant. The man left her, and she became so depressed that she was suicidal, she tried to kill herself. While she failed to kill herself, she did end up killing her daughter. And was charged... With feticide. Now, in that particular case, she was able to strike a plea deal where she she pled to criminal. I think she pled to criminal recklessness and it was a misdemeanor. And the the sentence was suspended for time served. But we have a situation in Indiana where they are really doing everything that they can in order to criminalize pregnancy. And Purvi Patel is the first person in the United States to be convicted, the first pregnant person to be convicted of feticide. We have There are laws throughout the country, Tennessee has one, there are laws being introduced that literally criminalize pregnancy to the point where if you, for example, are addicted to drugs. Let's say you're addicted to drugs, you realize you're pregnant, you go to the hospital and you think, you know, I'm really going to kick this habit, I want some help. You go to a hospital asking for help, what does the hospital do, especially if you're a woman of color? They call the police. And so the police come and they arrest you for chemical endangerment. Even though chemical endangerment laws were specifically enacted for cases where, let's say, you're Walter White, and you've got Walter Junior. in your little uh, what are they called? Not trailers, uh, RVs. So let's say you've got Walter Junior. in the RV while you're cooking up meth, and the meth is, you know, the fumes of the meth are are are, are endangering little Walter Junior. That's what chemical endangerment is for. Chemical endangerment is not supposed to be when you are taking a narcotic and you're endangering the fetus in utero. I mean, it's just the situation that we are in when it comes to pregnant women, pregnant people in this country is so far beyond anything that is normal that we are literally marching our way towards a situation where we're going to be living out The Handmaid's Tale, which if for those of you who don't know, it's a Margaret Atwood book. You should read it. It's an excellent book. But it's fiction. (laughs) And we are now moving into a situation where it's going to be nonfiction. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So good times. The the disrespect that women in this country receive for, I mean, if you want to talk about people who are up in arms about the the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Indiana, everyone's up in arms about lesbians, gays, bisexuals and transgender who, who may or may not be discriminated against. But what no one is talking about is that the federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act is already being used to discriminate against women. In terms of access to health care that 's exactly what the hobby lobby case is about right these corporations that are saying that providing health insurance that offers contraceptive coverage in the plans is against is a substantial burden on their religious freedom to the point where they are they have sued the government hundreds of companies have sued the government saying that they don 't want to have to abide by this provision in Obamacare that requires them to provide this contraception to their employees women are Religion is being wielded as a weapon against women all over the country and we are just not talking about it enough.
13: We turn now to Indiana, which has been in the spotlight this week over its new anti-LGBT so-called religious freedom law. But the historic application of another law in the state has received far less attention. On Monday, Purvi Patel, an Indian-American woman, became the first person in U.S. history sentenced to prison for feticide for ending her own pregnancy. In 2013, Badale arrived at a hospital bleeding. She told doctors she had a miscarriage and disposed of her stillborn fetus in a trash receptacle. Under questioning by police, Badale said she had believed she was about two months pregnant. After miscarrying in the bathroom, she said she tried unsuccessfully to resuscitate the fetus, which wasn't moving. She told police, quote, I assumed because the baby was dead, there was nothing to do. Bleeding in shock and not wanting her conservative Hindu parents to find out, she disposed of the fetus and went to the hospital prosecutors
14: would later accuse Patel of taking drugs to try to end her pregnancy based on text messages to a friend where she discussed buying the drugs online. But no evidence of abortion drugs was found in her body. The prosecutors also used a discredited float test to claim Purvi Patel's fetus, which they said was between 25 and 28 weeks, was born alive. So in addition to feticide, Patel was charged and convicted of neglect of a dependent. On Monday, a judge sentenced Purvi Patel to serve 20 years in prison. In total, her sentences actually add up to 41 years, but will be served concurrently with 10 years suspended. The sentencing comes amidst a growing, ongoing crackdown on reproductive rights. According to RH Reality Check, lawmakers in states across the country have introduced at least 235 bills to restrict abortion in 2015 alone. To talk more about this issue, we are joined here in New York by Lynn Paltrow, founder and executive Executive Director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women. What happened to Pervy Patel?
15: Well, Pervy Patel is um, an amazing example of the fact that it's not just reproductive rights that are under attack, it is the personhood of people who can get pregnant that this case demonstrates that we're not going back to some uh... going through some time warp to a time before row that women's pregnancies are now becoming the subject of policing prosecution and severe sentences in an age of mass incarceration so here's a woman who goes to the hospital for help because she has a miscarriage and ends up going being sentenced to jail for twenty years they say they charge her with feticide and originally people were very confused it's like how can you be charged with both feticide and neglect of a dependent, because feticide is understood as causing the death of a fetus. But the prosecutor says in Indiana, no, our law means that any deliberate attempt by a woman to terminate her own pregnancy is a crime. It didn't succeed, so we convinced that they then used, deliberately used, a invalid scientific tests to convince the jury that the baby had been al- born alive and neglected. So here you what have... What is the float test? Float test, as I understand it, and Dr. Gregory Davis at the University of Kentucky is the real expert, is that it, uh, it's a test that suggests that you take the lungs out of the fetus or the newborn, and if they float, that means there was air in them and the baby took a breath. However, it has been known for a hundred years that air can get into the lungs in other met ways. So it is an invalid test used, for example, in countries like El Salvador, uh, to convict women of illegal abortion who have actually suffered miscarriages and stillbirths. But the Indiana case says, look, if you ha- are a woman who even uh, does re- has a miscarriage and has done research to see perhaps if you could have had an abortion, women who suffer miscarriages and stillbirths, and women who have precipitous home births all now can go to jail essentially as murderers.
13: Could you explain then, what is it about Indiana's feticide law that enabled uh, prosecutors to convict Burvi on both these seemingly contradictory uh, counts, of neglect of a dependent and feticide? Well, and is it very similar in other states or anywhere?
15: I would say there's nothing unique about Indiana's feticide law. What's unique is the judge allowed this case to go forward in spite of a motion to dismiss, in spite rejected an amicus brief that we prepared on behalf of numerous health groups. Thirty-eight states have feticide laws. Many of them, most of them, explicitly say what they all were passed, how they were all passed, which is they were all passed or amended in the wake of violence against pregnant women with the promise that it would protect pregnant women and so-called unborn children from violence violence. In fact, in many states, as my research with Jean Flavin has shown, it's been used to arrest women who delayed having cesarean surgery. A woman in Iowa who fell down a flight of stairs while she was pregnant was arrested for attempted feticide. Uh, Indiana's law, uh, has is somewhat different from other states, but it's not really about the language of the statute. It's about the commitment of the prosecutors and the state to use it as a mechanism for depriving pregnant women of their human rights.
14: During the sentencing, the chief deputy prosecutor, Mark Rule, insisted the charges, aborting a fetus and neglecting a child, were separate and distinct. He told reporters the feticide charge against Patel requires only intent to unlawfully terminate a pregnancy, and in this case the pregnancy was terminated with a live birth triggered by abortion pills. Rule went on to say, quote, What is the reason she chose to terminate her pregnancy and the manner with which she did so? Preference and convenience, he said. After the sentencing, Rule briefly spoke with a reporter from WSBT.
0: It was against the law. That's all we really need to say about it. A lot
14: of people
3: in the public
11: have asked uh, why, why not murder?
0: The charging decision was made more than a year ago there were a lot of factors in that uh, and we're just we're going to deal with the charges that we have
14: that was the chief deputy prosecutor mark rule your response lynn paltrow
15: well i think uh there's an implication in this case the woman who is targeted uh is indian american and the suggestion of preference is an issue that um uh, napoff and others are addressing in terms of the suggestion that uh, uh, asian american women in particular can't be trusted around their uh, reproductive decision making but more importantly this or not more importantly but as part of this question of fairness and human rights The claim by those who support feticide laws, anti-abortion leaders like uh, Marjorie Dannenfelser and others have said over and over again, uh, when we put unborn protections into the law, it will result in compassion and protection for pregnant women. It will not result in punishment. And if there is any doubt among people that the result and perhaps intent of the anti-abortion, anti fairness efforts in this country will be women becoming part of the system of mass incarceration, this should end those doubts. That what this prosecutor is saying is that they could use their fetus aside law to recriminalize abortion and punish women who have miscarriages. Hmm.
13: Could you talk about, Lynn, uh, the case of Bebe Shui also in Indiana and the parallels between the two, Purvi Pate and and Bebe Shui? Well, obviously they're targeting first
15: uh, uh, women of uh, Asian descent, an immigrant woman, more vulnerable women to establish a precedent that they can apply to all women. In her case, she was pregnant. Uh, The man she thought she was going to raise this child with abandoned her. In an act of desperation, she attempted suicide she survived her friends uh, she agreed with her friends to go to the hospital to get help she wanted her baby to survive she did everything they asked her to do including undergoing cesarean surgery Uh, the baby was born alive and did not survive and she was arrested for attempted feticide and murder of a viable fetus. She was put in in jail, held there without bail for more than a year, and then uh, after we finally uh, helped to win bail for her, they held her under kind of house arrest with an electronic monitor for over a year before public pressure and other things got them to at least drop those charges. But two very important things about that case. One is, it's not a crime in any state of the United States to attempt suicide. But they use their feticide law to argue that there is a separate and unequal law for pregnant women who can go to jail for unique crimes because they become pregnant or have the capacity for pregnancy. And it also exposes something very disturbing about what the prosecutor said over and over again. At uh, Purvi Patel's trial, apparently he said over that she violated one simple rule, she should have gone to the doctor. Well, Bebe Shui went to the doctor, did everything they asked her to do, and what happened? She got arrested pervy patel went to the doctor to seek help and what happened she got arrested and if you believe that you can arrest a pregnant woman because she didn't go to the doctor then that leads doctors to think as they did in florida with samantha burton that you can force her to go to the doctor. Samantha Burton went to the hospital they said you're miscarrying you must stay here and she said look I got two little girls at home if God wants to take this baby God can take this baby and they held her prisoner at the hospital forced her to undergo cesarean surgery and she still lost the pregnancy so the the what people have to fight for is dignity and fairness for pregnant women with absolutely
14: no role for police and prosecutors in overseeing prenatal care. How do you link this in Indiana as we wrap up here, Lynn, to what's going on there, what everyone is hearing about, the so-called religious freedom law?
15: Well, these are issues of basic human rights and what people often forget is that the laws that have been described simply as anti-abortion when we tend to defend abortion but what's at stake are the human rights of women, or the people who have the capacity for pregnancy. So we have human rights issues around lesbian, gay, trans people, we have human rights about anybody who has the capacity for pregnancy. And this case is about not just depriving people of reproductive rights, but liberty, the most basic freedom articulated in the Constitution, which now in Indiana they say you can lose if you have a pregnancy and you cannot ensure a healthy birth outcome, or you don't go to the
12: doctor.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, free Pervy Patel. Now, before red state shaming of Indiana kicks back into gear, you should know that as of April 1st, there were 332 abortion restriction provisions making their way through 43 state houses. So not just red states or southern states or flyover states. Basically, unless you live in proactive Oregon or California, your state is at the very least stalled on extending care to those who need it or actively attempting to legislate basic health care until it's out of reach for poor and marginalized people, people like Purvi Patel. Our friend Imani Gandhi over at This Week in Blackness, who we heard tell this story first on today's episode, is also senior legal analyst at RH Reality Check, and she can describe but not make sense of either of the charges or the conviction. As she so succinctly puts it, a charge of feticide requires a dead fetus, while a charge of neglect of a dependent requires a live birth. The state's inability to create or present evidence of a self-induced miscarriage, which is illegal in every state, by the way or evidence that an attempted miscarriage resulted in a live birth, should have meant Patel went home. Instead, she's expected to serve 20 years in prison. RH Reality Check is calling for the state of Indiana to overturn the conviction and eliminate criminal liability for pregnancy outcomes. You can find, sign, and share their petition at rhrealitycheck.org. The graphic and link are on essentially every page. We shouldn't need for an injustice to be in our backyard to care about it, but for those who do, legislation that monitors and criminalizes pregnant people is setting records this year from coast to coast. Stopping the wave and demanding existing laws be overturned is a fight we can't afford to skip out on. Lives are at stake, right now, today. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If recognizing pregnant people as human beings matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the campaign to free Pervy Patel via social media so that others in your network can get involved.
6: Eric from Alabama. Just wanted to chime in. I'm listening to your, uh, your episode about all the race relations with the police officers. Just started a new job in Mobile after getting out of the Army and got in an elevator in the middle of a conversation where a black employee was explaining to a new black employee who just moved here, I don't know where from, that if the Mobile police pull him over and say they want to search his car, he is not to uh, deny that. That it will get very dangerous for him if he were to uh, try to uphold his Fourth Amendment rights. In other news, about uh, three years ago, my brother was 17 years old, got pulled over for DUI in Utah. He's white, and the police officer happened to know that he was the son of my dad, who makes about 200,000 a year in Utah, and didn't arrest him. Didn't even do a uh, an alcohol test. Just. Uh, got behind him and followed him home to explain to my dad that he had pulled him over and that he was drunk, and that was the extent of it. No legal ramifications at all. On a second note, as I just mentioned I just got out of the Army, when you are in war, there is a requirement that if you shoot the enemy, they are no longer an enemy combatant anymore. They are under your care. If they survive the shot the initial gunshot, you have to give them care. There's a well-known story in the Army of an Army medic who was standing by a vehicle in Iraq, and a sniper shot him in the chest. He falls down, he hops back up because his bulletproof vest stopped it, but then the vehicle turns and shoots the guy who just shot him, and that exact medic has to go over there and administer first aid to the sniper who just shot him, and he did so happily because it was his job. And to see these videos of these cops who shoot these people that they probably never should have shot in the first place, and then just stand around and not administer aid at all, it just makes me sick. So I just wanted to chime in. Thank you. You're doing a great job on this program. You the good work. Have a good one.
4: Hey, Jay. This is Peter from Michigan, I'm a longtime listener, but first-time caller. I'm not a member, but being 17 without a job makes that all hard. Once I do get a good job, I, I really intend to contribute. I'm calling about the episode on capitalism last week. In my AP language class, we are given prompts and asked to write essays in 45-minute time frames. A couple of days ago, we got one about competition and whether it is by its nature good or bad. Instead of taking this as competition for jobs or in sports, I used it as a vehicle to rant about capitalism, which is what I really wanted to write about after listening on Friday. I didn't think my teacher would care. He's pretty liberal, and occasionally we talk politics, which is nice because in high school, there is isn't much political stimulation. Anyway, here goes. Not only is societal competition the source of evil, we as individuals cognitively recognize this. Societal constraints administered from the few will us firmly deceit the compliance, knowing all the while this compliance contradicts our very nature, our inclination towards compassion. The The focus of a society is what drives its members. Economic, political, and social systems create focuses through the foundational beliefs upon which they stand. Feudal systems require citizens to serve the ones above them on the chain and command those below. The focus is productivity through a watering down of a central power. In anarchism, every person is out for themselves is free to do whatever they want. The focus is personal, ultimate freedom. Libertarianism is basically the same thing, but everyone is nice because of reasons. Capitalism is the focus of productivity as well, but productivity through hyper-competition, which supposedly breeds the best product. The historical evidence proves this to be quite simply incorrect. Competition can create the best result in arenas such as sports, music, or intellect, but in the marketplace, it produces ruthless business practices and amorality with little to no gain in the product's quality. Greed, consumerism, overindulgence, and self-obsession are rampant throughout our society. We go to school not to get an education, but so that we can get a job. A job to supply money, money with which we buy things, things we buy so others can keep their, their job, and use money to buy other things. A lot of logic in this system is beyond compare. But at the roots of this consumer's weed lies competition. Competition creates a consuming desire for monetary supremacy, and it stills in us from birth the requirement to be the best, and the way this is achieved is through monetary gain. When a stress is put upon something as great as the stress which is currently put upon monetary supremacy, money can very easily consumed with unhealthy competitive drive. This amount of drive leads to the amorality we so often see in the marketplace, such as buying politicians, monopolizing, industrial espionage, illegal wages, this fountain of problems finds its base in the extreme competitiveness. To remove these problems, we must simply remove the competition, readjusting the focus of our society from competitive monetary productivity to cooperation, scientific advancement, and quality equality. We must advance as a society beyond an obsession with an object of our own trivial design and onto an obsession with advancing the livelihood and comfort of all and equality between all peoples. So, anyway, yeah, that's all I got. Hope it wasn't too long. Thanks a lot for the podcast. Keep on doing what you're doing. Love the show. Have a nice one.
7: Hey Jay, this is Charlie in St. Louis. I'm calling because the poem you played to close out your last show was it's so incredibly moving and relevant to me as a white person who has been active in Ferguson since August. I was at Ferguson PD the night the grand jury decision of the grand jury decision. I saw Michael Brown's mother have to hear on a car radio in front of the police department that killed their son, and God knows how many cameras that her son would not get justice. I saw hundreds of black people collectively receive the news that their lives did not matter to this system. So this message is just for your white listeners. Stop criticizing the way the black people express their rage at these unimaginable injustices. If you had seen the tears and the agony that I witnessed that night in the streets, You would understand every bottle thrown, every window smashed, every fire started. My message is for white people to shut the fuck up and listen. Receive the message the black people are telling you without becoming defensive. Simply follow their lead in this fight against the white supremacist system that has benefited us and terrorized them for so long. I'll end with this. Rest in peace, Mike, Von Derrick, Michael, Terrell, Antonio, Isaac, Lidarius, Thomas, Kim, Dajon, and Thaddeus, the 12 black men and women that have have lost their lives at the hands of police in St. Louis County since August 9th. FTP.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And if you have not yet had your fill of talk about abortion, then you could do what I did last night, night, sort of to get in the mood for, for today's show. I watched two movies, uh, more or less back to back, had dinner in between. Uh, The first was a classic from the 90s called Citizen Ruth. I think I've only seen it once before and it it was sort of by accident. It was in a hotel room, I was flipping through and then this very strange uh, seeming movie came on. And and so I watched it from uh, almost the beginning all the way through, but uh, that was 10 years ago and I thought "I'll, I'll have a much more interesting perspective on this now. And uh, I was reminded that it actually starts out with a, a very unfit mother, you know, drug addict who does terrible things to her own body, uh, who gets pregnant, though she doesn't know it, and is then charged by the court uh, with endangering her fetus, which leads to sort of an absurd look at the abortion debate and, and takes more or less a balanced look at, at and I mean it's a it's a comedy, so it, it sort of takes a balanced look at how everyone gets crazy on this issue. So, you know, it was okay, but it, it's on it was on Netflix. If you have that, you can watch it for free and it might be worth your time. The other one though is quite good. A brand new movie came out. It's called Obvious Child. And so with Katie's recommendation, uh, she basically insisted that you know, I that I see it. And it's a modern-day romantic comedy-slash-abortion film that isn't about the debate at all. It's more just uh, sort of what the decision sort of feels like or what it can feel like. And then the way the actual actual process happens is is sort of a look at how it should be. I mean, it, it takes place in New York City, so abortion is available and you know accessible so uh, you know it's uh it's much more in line with how it how it generally should be everywhere for everyone or at least how it should be in the absence of a single payer healthcare system so again that one's obvious child and it's available for rent now so you can get it on Like iTunes or Amazon or wherever you do things like that, and and probably other places I don't know about, but it definitely comes highly recommended. And a fun fact that I learned just before seeing the movie is that the star of the movie, Jenny Slate, uh, she's on Saturday Night Live and, you know, she's an actress, she's been in other things, uh, but she's also the sister-in-law of friend of the show and regular contributor Lee Camp. So enjoy knowing that bit of information. But that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors for the show, from bestoftheleft.com.
7: And
12: it's a and shame How we get so trained